You are listening to The Pregnancy Podcast with Vanessa Merton. Hello, thank you for tuning into The Pregnancy Podcast. I have a promo code for you to save 40% off one item for motherhood maternity, which is where I shopped when I was pregnant, and they have the best selection of maternity clothes. You can shop at your local motherhood store or use the promo code MAMA40 to shop online and save 40%. To check it out, go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash maternity clothes. You can also save 25% off a prenatal vitamin. You know that I love the prenatal from Zoller because they use really high quality ingredients and it has omega-3s like DHA. To check it out and get a promo code to save 25% on Amazon, go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash vitamin. And you can save 10% on a really amazing car seat. This car seat is going to take you from the time your baby's born all the way until your child does not need a car seat anymore. To check it out, you can go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash car seat. Last week, we talked about what you should be doing and what you should not be doing when you're trying to get pregnant. So if you are currently trying to have a baby, or you think that you're going to want another baby in the future, that's a great episode to check out. This week, we are talking about gestational diabetes. A basic understanding of how your body processes glucose is going to help you understand this topic. So when you eat, your body breaks down foods into glucose, which is a type of sugar. And glucose is used throughout your body for energy. And your pancreas produces a hormone called insulin. And this helps your muscles, fat, and your other cells absorb glucose for fuel. When you're pregnant, your body naturally becomes more resistant to insulin, which means that more glucose remains in your blood because it is not being absorbed and more glucose reaches your baby. And I'm sure you can imagine that a growing baby needs lots of energy. So this makes sense because they're using that extra glucose for fuel. For most moms, this works exactly like it's supposed to. Even though your body is more resistant to the insulin and higher levels of glucose are in your blood, your pancreas is going to react by producing more insulin, which is what it's supposed to do. Overall, this still is going to keep your blood sugar levels in check. But the problem comes in when your pancreas can't keep up with the high demand for additional insulin and more glucose builds up in your blood. And this is called hyperglycemia. Insulin doesn't cross the placenta, but glucose does. So too much of that extra glucose in your blood that isn't being absorbed and used as energy is going to be going to your baby. And that extra glucose is going to be more than your baby needs, and it's going to end up being stored as fat. So that's essentially what gestational diabetes is. And gestational diabetes is a type of diabetes that just occurs during your pregnancy, and it goes away after the birth of your baby. Thankfully, it is not permanent, but it does put you at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. There are some classifications for people that don't have normal production of insulin and have abnormally high blood glucose. Pre-diabetic means that your blood sugar levels are high and that you're at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes means that your body does not produce insulin, and people who are type 1 diabetic are often born with this condition. 
And type 2 diabetes is when people do not respond as well to insulin and they may not produce enough insulin. And that's usually something that people develop later in life, not a condition that they're born with. Risks of gestational diabetes can affect both you and your baby. And these risks include a risk of your baby gaining additional weight, which is known as macrosomia or a big baby. And this is typically a baby who weighs more than 4,500 grams or 9 pounds, 15 ounces. The issue with a very big baby is that this can increase an injury to their shoulder during birth, which is known as shoulder dystocia or other birth injuries. As your baby's body is trying to deal with high levels of glucose, their pancreas responds by producing more insulin, and this can result in them having lower blood glucose levels at birth, which can be associated with breathing problems. Gestational diabetes puts your baby at a higher risk for jaundice, a higher risk for having a stay in the NICU, which is the neonatal intensive care unit after they're born. Babies born with excess insulin are at a greater risk for obesity and type 2 diabetes. There's also a higher risk of stillbirth and preterm labor. Gestational diabetes also puts you at a higher risk for a cesarean birth. It raises your risk of hypertension and preeclampsia. And you're also more likely to get gestational diabetes in a subsequent pregnancy and to develop type 2 diabetes later in life. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a study that included over 25,000 women showing the links between gestational diabetes and some adverse pregnancy outcomes. Rates of gestational diabetes have been slowly increasing in the United States, and it affects close to 6% of pregnancies. And the rates vary among ethnicities, like among Asian women, it's over 11%. Rates also vary by weight. In obese women, it's 13.6%, while in underweight women, it's 2.9%. And while gestational diabetes may not affect you, the testing will, because it's become standard procedure to test all pregnant women, even if you don't have any risk factors. Generally, you would be considered to have a low risk for gestational diabetes if you're younger than 25, you have a normal body weight, you do not have a parent or sibling with diabetes, you have no history of abnormal glucose metabolism, you don't have a history of poor obstetric outcomes, and you're not from an ethnic group with a high diabetes prevalence. And that would include Hispanic American, Native American, Asian American, African American, or Pacific Islander. On the flip side, you would be considered at a high risk for gestational diabetes if you are obese, if you have a family history of diabetes, and if you had gestational diabetes in a previous pregnancy and have had abnormal glucose metabolism in the past. So the testing for this is done in several ways. First is the glucose challenge screening, and this is a preliminary screening test to evaluate how your body processes sugar. The screening test is usually performed between 24 to 28 weeks and it's considered to be a standard routine test. And this is done in the early part of your third trimester, because with gestational diabetes, insulin resistance often starts around week 20. And if you're considered to be at a high risk, you'll likely be tested earlier on. And even if that comes back negative, 
you'll probably be tested again in the third trimester. There are some practitioners who argue that women at a low risk should not be required to be routinely tested. Although if that were the case, that would mean that around 4% of cases of gestational diabetes could go undiagnosed. So it is routine in the United States to screen all expecting mothers for gestational diabetes. During the test, you're asked to drink a sweet liquid of glucose within five minutes, and then you're going to have your blood drawn one hour from having the drink, because blood glucose levels normally peak within an hour. There are some alternatives to this test, like eating jelly beans instead of drinking the glucose drink, or blood monitoring at home if you're concerned about consuming 50 grams of sugar in a short period. And if you want to explore some different options for testing, I'm going to link to an episode in the show notes that's focused entirely on that topic. A high level of glucose in your blood might indicate that your body's not processing sugar effectively, which would be a positive test. The majority of expecting mothers are taking the one-hour test, and on this test, the threshold for a normal blood sugar level is going to be 130 to 140 milligrams per deciliter or lower. And this threshold might vary between providers. And like any screening test, it's not perfect. The sensitivity of this test is 74%. So that means that a positive result correctly identifies 74% of women who have gestational diabetes. And it has a specificity of 77%, which means that 33% of women who do not have gestational diabetes are still going to get a positive result. So if the results of this screen test are positive, then you are going to have a glucose tolerance test performed which is a diagnostic test. And just so you know, the difference between a screening test and a diagnostic test, a screening test just tells your care provider that you are at a higher risk for something. It doesn't actually diagnose any condition. So if you go on to take the glucose tolerance test, this is diagnostic. So this would be the test that would actually diagnose you with gestational diabetes. This test is a little bit more involved because before taking it, your doctor or midwife is going to ask you to make sure that you're eating at least 150 milligrams of carbohydrates. That's about what you would get from a slice or two of bread for three days prior to the time that you will be asked to fast. So you're not going to be permitted to eat or drink anything but sips of water for 14 hours prior to this test. So it's something you're going to want to schedule first thing in the morning. A technician or your care provider is going to draw blood to measure your baseline or fasting blood glucose level, and then you're going to drink a larger volume or a more concentrated solution of the glucose drink than you would have used in your screen test. This is usually going to be 75 or 100 grams of glucose, and then your blood is drawn and tested every hour for the next three hours. This test is more accurate than the screening test. And if only one of your readings comes back abnormal, your doctor or midwife may suggest some changes to your diet and possibly test you again later in your pregnancy. And if two or more of your readings come back abnormal, you're likely going to be diagnosed with gestational diabetes, and you're going to be talking to your care provider about a treatment plan. About one third of women who are over the limit on the screening test go on to be diagnosed with gestational diabetes on the second test. 
And like I said, if you want more information on testing for gestational diabetes, I'll put a link for you in the show notes. If you are diagnosed with gestational diabetes, the first thing you should know is that you're going to be keeping track of your blood sugar with a glucose meter, and you're going to be keeping a log of your results that you'll be reviewing when you see your doctor or midwife. The frequency of when you will need to monitor your blood glucose is going to depend on the particulars of your results and how you're managing those blood sugar levels. Hopefully, changes to your diet and exercise habits are going to work to keep your glucose levels in check. And if you need additional assistance, then your care provider may want to talk about medications. The first line of defense is dietary modification, or sometimes it's called medical nutrition therapy. The general recommendation is that your carbohydrate intake should be about 40% of your total calorie intake and that you should be choosing foods with a low glycemic index. The glycemic index is a value that's assigned to foods based on how quickly they're going to increase your blood glucose. And if you want to check out a list of common foods and how they rank on this index, I'll put a link in the show notes for you. In addition, your care provider may recommend that you adjust your caloric intake based on your weight or your BMI. And remember, you hear me mention this on the podcast all the time. Your focus should be on healthy whole foods. The next thing that you may be asked to do is to change your exercise or your workout habits. When you exercise, your body needs additional glucose for energy because you're burning more energy. So when additional glucose is released by your liver to fuel your workout, your pancreas should respond by producing more insulin and working out can lower your blood glucose levels. Studies show that exercise results in lower instances of gestational diabetes and lower instances of abnormal glucose tolerance. And I'll put a link to one of those studies in the show notes. There are not specific guidelines for how much exercise you should be doing or specifically what to do. And this is a good topic to bring up with your doctor or midwife. Plus, paying attention to your body will also go a long way in letting you know what level of exercise you're comfortable with, and this may change as your pregnancy progresses. A Cochrane review that looked at lifestyle interventions and outcomes found that lifestyle interventions were associated with a reduction in the risk of being born large for gestational age. The number of babies with birth weight over 400 grams was lower in the group that had lifestyle interventions, and there was no clear difference in the number of newborn babies experiencing low blood glucose levels. The evidence was of moderate quality for these findings, and birth weight was also lower in the lifestyle intervention group. For mothers, lifestyle interventions made no clear difference in the number of women with pregnancy-induced high blood pressure or having a cesarean section, and that was based on low-quality evidence. There was also no difference on induction of labor. Similar numbers of women experienced perennial trauma or tearing and developed type 2 diabetes at a maximum of 10 years after giving birth, and these findings were supported by low-to-moderate-quality evidence. I want to talk about your medication options for controlling blood glucose. And just before we do that, I want to thank the sponsors for this episode. Motherhood Maternity is the best resource for maternity clothes. 
there's going to be some staples that you're going to want for your pregnancy, like jeans, leggings, and tops. Plus, they have a great selection of really cute maternity clothes for work and even dressier outfits for all of the holiday events coming up. And you can get 40% off one item in the month of November with the code MAMA40. I shopped here during both of my pregnancies, and I was really happy with the selection, with the quality, and with the prices. And I know it can be so overwhelming to think about not fitting into anything in your closet. It's really worth it to invest in maternity clothes. You're going to be so much more comfortable, and the clothing is made specifically for pregnancy, which means that it's going to have room for your growing belly, and it's going to fit you really well. You do not have to sacrifice comfort or style when you're expecting a baby. You can shop at your local motherhood store or shop online. To check it out, go to PregnancyPodcast.com forward slash maternity clothes. Another thing that you definitely need during your pregnancy is a prenatal vitamin. And I don't recommend just taking anyone. I really think it's important to take a high quality prenatal vitamin. And this is why I'm such a fan of the prenatal vitamin from Zoller. They use really high quality ingredients like the active form of folate, really bioavailable iron, plus it has omega-3s like DHA, which are really important for you and your baby. To check out the vitamin and get a promo code to save 25% when you buy it on Amazon, go to PregnancyPodcast.com forward slash vitamin. And one thing that you're going to have to buy for your baby is a car seat. I have tried a lot of different car seats over the years, and I found one that I absolutely love. And this is the Every Stage Car Seat from Evenflow. I like it because this is the only car seat that you will ever need to buy. It is an infant seat, a convertible, and a booster all in one. So your kid is not going to outgrow it, and you're not going to have to go back out and shop around and drop a few hundred dollars on a new car seat every few years. This car seat is going to be really comfortable for your kid. It's extremely safe, and it is so easy to get your kid in and out of the seat, to move the car seat from one car to another, and right now you can save 10%. Go to PregnancyPodcast.com forward slash car seat to check it out and to get that promo code. Okay, let's get back to talking about medication. If diet and exercise are not working effectively to keep your blood glucose levels in check, then medication may be suggested. And this is the case for 30 to 40% of women with gestational diabetes. The available treatment options for medication are going to be insulin or oral hypoglycemics. Insulin does not cross the placenta, and it's going to lower your blood glucose levels by helping you better be able to absorb glucose and use it for fuel. Insulin is an injection that's done with a needle, and it comes in many doses that vary on the time that it takes to work and how long it's effective for. And like I said, it does not cross the placenta. There really isn't clear dosing instructions for insulin during pregnancy. Dosing can be based on your weight, on your weight and your gestational age of your baby, or your care provider may just use a one-dose-for-all regimen. The dosing is largely going to be up to your doctor or midwife and their preference. 
There's quite a bit of data on the many types of insulin available, and several are considered safe during pregnancy. If your doctor or midwife recommends insulin and you want to read more on the details on different brands and doses, I'll put a link in the show notes. There are two hypoglycemics that are used during pregnancy, and these are glyburide and metformin. These tend to be less expensive than insulin, and they are oral, so they don't require an injection. And both of these medications do cross the placenta. Glyburide, which goes by the brand names Glynase, Diabeta, or Micronase, is a bit controversial. There are several studies that support the efficacy and safety of glyburide for women with gestational diabetes, but the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Diabetes Association guidelines don't recommend its use until larger randomized controlled trials are completed. With that being said, a survey conducted by ACOG found that up to 13% of American fellows prescribe glyburide as a first-line pharmacological agent in women with gestational diabetes. One study that compared glyburide with insulin found an association between glyburide and an elevated risk of NICU admission, neonatal hypoglycemia, respiratory distress, birth injury, and large for gestational age in women with gestational diabetes. And of course, I'll link to the full study in the show notes for you. The other option for a hypoglycemic is metformin. And this goes by the brand names Glumetza, Glucophage, Fortimet, or Riomet. And this is generally thought of as safe during pregnancy, but there have been some questions about long-term effects on babies whose mothers took metformin during pregnancy. If you want to read more on metformin, you can check out a link in the show notes. If your care provider is recommending insulin or another medication, you're going to need to discuss the details, the risks, and the benefits specific to your situation. Another thing, if you have gestational diabetes, is that you may be asked to monitor your baby and to do fetal movement counting or kick counting. And also your care provider may want to do a non-stress test or a biophysical profile. And that's going to be used to monitor your baby and check on their heart rate. And in the show notes, I'm also going to link to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and their guidelines for gestational diabetes. When you're talking about gestational diabetes, high risk is a category that often gets placed on this. And this really is a blanket term that's applied for a lot of reasons. And the conditions that this applies to can vary from one provider to the next. The majority of care providers are going to consider gestational diabetes to be high risk. This means that they may be monitoring you more closely you may have more frequent appointments. It's possible that this will limit your options for where to give birth. If you're planning a birth center birth, then you're going to need to see what the criteria of the birth center is. Generally, they are going to want a normal low-risk pregnancy. Some birth centers may not take on pregnant women who have gestational diabetes, and others may be comfortable with it if you're managing it with diet and lifestyle and not taking insulin. And if you're planning on a home birth, you're going to need to talk to your midwife about your options if you're diagnosed with gestational diabetes. 
The good news is that this does go away after your baby. You're likely going to have an additional blood test within the first few months after you have your baby. And then you may want to do additional screening every few years. And that's just because you're at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. Often, it's suggested that a labor be induced for women that have gestational diabetes. The goal with an induction is to prevent stillbirth and to decrease the risks that come along with your baby being at a higher weight. Those risks are things like shoulder dystocia, birth trauma, or a cesarean birth. In one study that I'll link to in the show notes, the researchers note that there's no definitive data on the timing and mode of delivery for pregnant women with gestational diabetes. If the patient has normal or near-normal glucose levels, it's recommended that she deliver at term. The general recommendation is that pregnancies complicated by gestational diabetes should not extend beyond term. Elective cesarean section has not been associated with significant reduction of birth trauma and has not been found to be cost-effective. Earlier delivery was associated with a reduction in macrosomia, but not with a reduction in other neonatal complications. The big issue is that there's also risk associated with inducing labor. I covered this a while ago on the podcast, and I'll link to that episode on induction in the show notes. Another study that looked at timing of delivery in women with gestational diabetes really breaks down the risks and benefits of inducing labor. One of the problems is that this is often based on gestational age or ultrasound estimated fetal weight. Estimated fetal weight is really not very accurate. I covered that in a past Q&A that I'm going to link to, and I recall one study they did where the mother's guess at what her baby's birth weight was going to be was just as accurate as the weight estimated by an ultrasound. So in the study that looked at timing of delivery, the researchers suggest that in the absence of clear evidence for routine guidelines, the decision on elective delivery should be made on an individual basis and it should take into account a number of clinical factors, including gestational age, the estimated fetal weight, the type of diabetes, the degree of glycemic control, obstetrical history, how many children you've had, and your cervical status. And they look at cervical status because induction tends to be more effective if your cervix has already begun to dilate and efface. The potential benefits and risks of elective delivery should be discussed with the patient, and the patient preference following a discussion should also be included in the final decision. This is informed consent, right? This is what we want. These decisions can be tough ones, and you're really going to need to discuss all of your options and the risks and benefits with your doctor or midwife. The last thing I want to cover on this topic is that babies born to mothers who have gestational diabetes are at a higher risk of being born with hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar. And as a result, many of them are supplemented with formula from the start, and this is needed to bring up their blood sugar levels. There is something that you can do if you want to try and avoid formula or decrease the odds that you will need to supplement with formula and that is to collect colostrum prior to your baby being born. 
And if you don't already know, colostrum is what your breasts produce before your milk comes in, which usually is a few days after your baby's born. And this is another thing that there are not clear guidelines on. Generally, this is something you would start between 34 to 37 weeks. And there has been concern about inducing labor because stimulating your nipples by hand expressing colostrum could produce oxytocin. Nipple stimulation is one way that women try to naturally induce labor. A recent study has shown, though, that there is no increased risk for premature labor or delivery for women who are expressing colostrum. And the conclusion of that study is that there's no harm in advising women with diabetes and pregnancy at a low risk of complications to express breast milk from 36 weeks. If you think that collecting and storing colostrum is something that you want to do, this is a great topic to bring up with your care provider. And I'll also put a link in the show notes for you to check out with more information on that. To recap today's episode, whoa, this was a long one. We covered gestational diabetes, how your body processes glucose, the risks of gestational diabetes, how it can be tested for, how it's treated with diet, exercise, and medications, and also talked about the evidence behind inducing labor for gestational diabetes. I want to thank you for tuning into the pregnancy podcast today. I hope that you find this episode helpful. As always, you can contact me, Vanessa, at PregnancyPodcast.com. You can find notes and resources for this episode at PregnancyPodcast.com forward slash episode 144. 